it, it is difficult to ask questions about anything in ecology, about interactions and their outcomes for ecosystems without explicitly factoring in people because our influence is so pervasive. From the University of Washington College of the Environment, this is Field Sound. When you think of the wild, where does your mind go? I tend to think of the American West. Wild rivers running through rugged landscapes, wide open spaces, rolling hills ringed by snow-capped peaks of vast mountain ranges. The sounds of the desert at sunset, a harsh and beautiful landscape coming to life as the sun goes down or waves crashing on the worn rocks and geologic formations of the Pacific coastline. Beautiful and dangerous and mesmerizing. We live in the age of the Anthropocene. The world's human population has swelled. Eight billion and growing. Our world is changing. Wild places are fewer and farther between. The work of scientists like Aaron Worsing exists in wild places. Worsing studies predator-prey interactions, seeking a better understanding of how predators influence their surroundings by looking at their interactions with one another and their prey. I'm Aaron Worsing. I'm a professor of wildlife science in the School of Environmental and Forest Sciences and also the principal investigator of the Predator Ecology Lab where my students, postdocs, and I explore a wide range of questions pertaining to the behavior, the ecology, and the conservation of large predators in terrestrial and marine environments. Fieldwork, by its very nature, cultivates connection to the wild. Working as a field ecologist, the experience of putting yourself in the wild environments where these predator-prey interactions occur means Worsing is essentially able to put himself in the shoes of the animals he studies. The first time I really did that extensively was probably when I was a master's student at the University of Idaho. I was studying snowshoe hares, not dangerous predators, fluffy bunnies. But the great thing about snowshoe hares is they're sort of the ultimate focal species if you're interested in predation because everything out there in the woods is trying to eat them. And so at the time, I was really interested in how various predators from bobcats to coyotes to large weasels like Martin and Fisher were targeting snowshoe hares and the impacts that had on snowshoe hare populations uh, in Idaho. But that meant I was out catching and tagging and tracking the survival of snowshoe hares in the Bitterroot Mountains, which are part of the um, Selway Bitterroot Wilderness, one of the largest unbroken tracts of wilderness in the lower 48 states. Uh, it was an area that at the time in the late 90s and early 2000s was being recolonized by wolves, and it was filled with black bears and mountain lions. The process was basically going out at the end of the day at twilight and setting snowshoe hair traps out and then checking them in the morning to see what you got. And that mean, meant being in the woods, often alone, <laughs> in, in low light situations that I bumped into bears in particular quite a lot. I was working in dense forests, so I had to cut trails in the woods. Yeah. 
the bears loved my trails and they were 50 meters apart. So I'd be walking up one and 50 meters over, I could hear the bear walking down my trail. And so I had to get used to basically sharing the environment uh, with bears under those circumstances. And generally speaking, black bears aren't dangerous, but I also knew that there are rare occasions when they can be. Uh, and I had one especially frightening instance, really at the tail end of my field work as a master's student. I was on one of my study areas and I was walking along one of my trails and I just got this sense that something wasn't quite right. And I looked up and there was a very large black bear, probably 50, 100 feet away looking right at me. And I had been used during those encounters to seeing them just run away because they're typically very frightened of people. But in this instance, it looked at me and it actually, and so I, I yelled out just to make it myself known, assuming it would leave. It didn't. Instead, it stood up on its hind legs and it was way bigger than I was. Uh, and I'm a pretty big person. And so the hair just stood up in the back of my neck and it looked at me for a little bit and then it dropped back down on all fours and started walking toward me. And I, I got the sense right then and there that I there was a possibility that I might have to defend myself because the rule with black bears is if it does attack you, you have to fight back. Uh, unlike brown bears, which are typically just looking to neutralize a threat so you would defend yourself. Um, so I just slowly backed away and I decided if the bear wouldn't leave, maybe I would and I could defuse the situation. And uh, happily, that's what happened. It didn't follow me any farther. But again, there was that moment of engagement. Um, when you're in field situations like that, working with large predators or at least in systems where you might meet one, the fear is not that they're there, but that you might end up in a situation where there is that engagement, where you see it, it sees you, it's an interaction. And that kind of links back to my science because it's actually, I think the fact that, that those circumstances resonate so much with me and can be so intense also explain why I'm so excited because that's the focus of my research is those predator-prey interactions, which are frightening, and how do both the predator and the prey animal sort of cope with those situations, right? What do the predators do to ensure they make a catch? What do the prey animals do to ensure they get away? So what sets field ecology apart from other sciences? Patience, adaptability, observation, Readiness. So one of the sort of fundamental precepts of the scientific process is that if you have a question you want to answer, you try to control the circumstances as much as possible so you can target whatever causal factor or relationship you're interested in. Uh, and we typically do that in laboratory experiments or some kind of manipulative experiment, right? Where we control every other factor except the one that we're manipulating. But you can't often do that in open field situations where you're studying wide roaming cryptic species that aren't very numerous, that might be rare, threatened, protected, difficult to capture, dangerous to capture, right? And so instead, you have to look for opportunities. Basically, you have your questions in mind and you have the answers to those, possible answers to those questions, which are your hypotheses. To test those hypotheses, you have to sort of wait for nature to actually provide you with an opportunity to do what's called a pseudo or natural experiment. Basically, you have to look for variability, the right set of circumstances in nature where the thing you're interested in is changing where, while everything else remains roughly the same. And so some examples of that is when I was a PhD student, I participated in a long running study of the ecological role of tiger sharks in a coastal seagrass ecosystem 
called Shark Bay in Western Australia. And the really, the challenging thing about that system is it's a 13,000 square kilometer bay that is remarkable because it houses the world's largest and most diverse beds of seagrass. It's, it's truly the seagrass Serengeti. I, I think it's every bit as exciting as the Great Barrier Reef, but it doesn't get the publicity. Um, but you can't manipulate it, not, not at a scale that's relevant to tiger sharks, which are oceanic voyagers that make trips, for example, between Western Australia and South Africa. You can't manipulate that system. So how do you know what the sharks are doing? Well, the nice thing about Shark Bay is my colleagues and I discovered early on that sharks aren't always in the system. And in fact, their numbers in the system fluctuate in a very predictable way. They tend to be quite numerous in the warm season, less numerous in the cold season, but month to month, there's also a fair bit of variability. And so in tracking that variability in tiger shark numbers, what we were able to do is basically create an index of how much need there was to be safe for animals that they target as food. Dugongs, sea cows, sea turtles, sea snakes, cormorants, bottlenose dolphins, things like that. We studied the behavior of a suite of these potential prey animals in relation to sort of ambient fluctuations in tiger shark numbers, which again corresponded to what I call the need for defensive investment. The, the idea was if tiger shark predation risk is important to these animals, then when tiger sharks are absent, they should relax. They should worry about other concerns like reproduction and feeding on whatever their food source is, right? Fish or seagrass. And as tiger shark abundance goes up, they should switch from doing those things to taking preventative actions to make sure they don't end up getting eaten by tiger sharks. Because the fundamental rule when you study what's called the ecology of fear or how animals respond to the prospect of predation, you would expect almost every animal that's out there, unless it has a very short life, basically if it has any future reproductive prospects, when there's need for defensive investment, they should pay heed to that. And that's exactly what we saw. Basically, in a very predictable manner, as tiger shark abundance went up, the, all those other animals like dugongs and sea turtles started abandoning their favorite foraging grounds. They started resting in different areas. They altered their grouping patterns. They altered their activity cycle, becoming more vigilant or apprehensive in ways that totally corresponded with the ambient abundance of tiger sharks and weren't explained by other factors. So that was a classic natural experiment that we could not have conducted if tiger sharks had always been there. Another great opportunity was when I started my position here at the University of Washington in 2008. At that very moment, the very first gray wolf pack was discovered in Washington, uh, the lookout pack in the Metau Valley after wolves had been absent for about 70, 80 years. Here was another op ecological opportunity where you have prey animals for gray wolves, mule deer, elk, moose, white-tailed deer, that had existed for about 80 years with no wolves. And now wolves were coming back into the state, but their distribution was patchy. They had recolonized some areas and not others. So I leapt on that opportunity and established a series of study sites, some that were occupied by wolves, some that weren't, all of which were otherwise similar. In, in terms of topography and forest cover and things like that. And then my students and I asked, is there anything different about deer behavior in the areas with wolves that would be an indicator that the deer did care about not being eaten by wolves? And the answer was yes, quite dramatically, that we observed differences in spatial distribution patterns, daily activity. When I started that wolf study, I just ported over all the understanding that we had developed from about 20 years in Shark Bay. 
about our understanding of how tiger sharks affected different prey species and used it to make predictions about how deer would respond to wolves. And that marine tiger shark model worked really, really well at predicting not just that deer respond to wolves, but that different deer species would respond differently. And that was exactly the same thing that we had seen in Shark Bay. Basically, prey animals responded in ways that were predicted by whatever decision favored their probability of getting away. Were they sprinters? Were they hiders? Were they fighters? And so that's become a, a major theme of my research program now is not just documenting that prey are afraid of predators, but anticipating exactly how they will respond and using the traits of the prey species to make those predictions. In talking with Worsing, a question came to mind repeatedly. Is there any wild left untouched by humans? That is sort of the key question now that we're in ostensibly the Anthropocene, right? The era of, of pervasive human influence. Not only do people heavily modify the landscape, but they, they can modify traits of both the prey and predators, including other top predators like wolves. It, it is difficult to ask questions about anything in ecology, about interactions and their outcomes for ecosystems without explicitly factoring in people because our influence is so pervasive. Human impacts on the environment are nearly impossible to separate from field ecology. Perceptions of a threat in wild animals changes their behavior. The term Anthropocene describes the geological period marked by human impact on global environmental systems and the geologic record. Anthropocene more broadly applies to humanity's massive impact on the natural environment. These debates are so challenging because you sort of, you have these opposing forces which are, all have validity. So in, in, in the case of parks and protected areas and beautiful areas that people want to visit, on the one hand are considerations like we have a problem with people becoming disconnected with nature, right? As we become increasingly urbanized and young people grow up without any connection to nature, basically they, they don't miss what they're not even aware of, which becomes a major conservation issue right, and contributes to global biodiversity loss. But the opposite end of the spectrum is there are so many of us now, what did we just crest 8 billion? Um, and we also have, when we are given the opportunity, an insatiable appetite for connecting with nature, but that sort of sets up the love it to death problem, right? We have these beautiful areas, but what's happened? What are we seeing now in national parks, but reservation systems and caps on usage because there can, and this, this applies to all forms of recreation and ecotourism, there can be too much of a good thing. And there are too many of us from an, from an ecological perspective. We can't all be everywhere tromping all over everything because it doesn't leave much room for the rest of the wild. So those are, those are two really challenging forces and there aren't easy answers to how we reconcile that. But again, you know, research on these non-consumptive effects is just a reminder to us that, again, even if we have the best of intentions, if too many of us show up in a place, we can cause animals to vacate forever. The Yellowstone wolves were once considered vermin. The government put bounties out to eradicate them in the 20s, and the food web fell apart. 
In the 60s and 70s, conservation biologists brought attention to this issue. Then in the 90s, wolves returned to Yellowstone. As predators, wolves keep a cap on the abundance of their prey, and they help maintain balance in the food web. Yellowstone wolves are a great example to learn from, but they're a bit of an anomaly. Wolves were reintroduced into Yellowstone in 1995 and 1996. They were repatriated to a national park where human influence was fairly minimal. At least critical human influences that would be deleterious to wolves. And of course, the wolf project that precipitated at that time has... I, mean, I, I would say has been you know, the most revealing long-term study of wolves anywhere in the world. And is, it has generated information that has not just taught us a lot about wolves, but I think it has completely reframed the debate about predators and, it, and has globally changed debates about the roles predators play. When I was on sabbatical in, in Australia, uh, both earlier this year and back in 2016, I was amazing how in that country, the discussion about dingoes, are they a pest animal or are they a key top predator, was being informed by what had been found in Yellowstone. All of that information has been gleaned from a national park that's sort of an anomalous postage stamp embedded in a landscape where humans dominate. So there are real questions about, it's not that, that anything found out about wolves in Yellowstone is illegitimate. In fact, it may be the most legitimate because it's, it's maybe more of a reference point for the way things used to be. But there are questions about the applicability of what we've learned about wolves in Yellowstone to other systems where humans are a major ecosystem player. And so what, what's really, I think, what's an exciting research frontier that we have the ability to explore in places like Washington is what is the role of wolves, not in a protected area like Yellowstone, but in what we call a managed or anthropogenic or human-dominated landscape of eastern Washington, which they're pouring into now. And the suspicion is it might be fundamentally different because of all the different ways that humans can influence wolves. And if humans influence wolves, then humans might indirectly influence the relationship between wolves and a host of other species. That area is, is fairly new, but there is evidence accumulating, including out of some of my own work, that when you put big predators like wolves in a human-dominated system, their impact is really different because they tend to be less numerous, more patchily distributed, and they're afraid of us. So they're not just impacting prey, they're responding to us, right? So it totally repositions them in the food web. And I think in many cases, for a variety of different reasons, our presence and our activities can short circuit what would be, I don't want to say normal, but you know, what would be interactions more typical of, of situations where humans have a light footprint. And Washington is just the ultimate system for doing that, not only because we have large predators recolonizing human landscapes, but also in Western Washington, because Seattle is this phenomenal urbanization gradient right, where people are kind of pouring into wilderness areas too. And so there are lots of opportunities right in our own backyard to explore how human presence shapes predator ecology. So what keeps Aaron Worsing going? Earlier we were talking about, really, I mean, the reason I do this is really because I still just have this childlike excitement about predation. I was just utterly fascinated with them when I was a three or four year old, and I still am. And so that passion is what continues to motivate me. And so 
from the first lecture of all the undergrad, undergrad classes I do really emphasizes that we mustn't forget animals are exciting, right? Why are we doing this? Why are we in these classes? Why do we want to uh, protect these animals? Because they're absolutely fascinating, right? And to be in this business, to be a scientist, because so much of it is laborious, uh, you have to be absolutely driven and motivated by an excitement about the subject material. And so really what I mostly try to convey in my classes is just how amazing animals are, how excited I still am about wildlife. And if, if, I, can, if I teach the students nothing but manage to just convey a little bit of that and amplify what is often already their, their excitement about animals, that I will have considered myself successful. Ultimately, I like the classes to be a fusion of the scientific method, but more importantly, with an excitement. If you can put those two things together, um, then you'll be a good scientist. A special thanks to our guest, Aaron Worsing. You can learn more about Worsing's research and the University of Washington College of the Environment by clicking the link in this episode description or by visiting our website, environment.uw.edu. From all of us at Fieldstown, thanks for listening.